I'm Rosie Matteo, and welcome to From Pot to Popular, a new podcast where we interview the media, marketers, and moguls who are mainstreaming cannabis. Welcome to today's episode of Pot to Popular. I'm your host, Rosie Matteo. Today, we are joined by Scott Grossman, Vice President of Corporate Development for Turning Point Brands. Scott is going to join us today and talk to us about his views on brand building in the cannabis space, where he thinks the U.S. multi-state operators are going. I know they are taking a 150-year-old brand, Zigzag, and infusing new life into it as they increase their distribution across the cannabis supply chain. Welcome, Scott. Hey, Rosie. Great to be here. How you been? So glad you're here. I've been great. And I was saying, you know, before we uh, started recording that uh, it's always great to chat with friends and give our listeners a chance to understand different parts of the industry and people who play, you know, big roles in it. And that's you. So, but I always like to start with the background. So Scott, you have an extensive experience as a public and private equity investor. Give our listeners a brief overview of your background and tell us what drew you to the space. Yeah, absolutely. Some maybe some some quick context on Turning Point. You know, Turning Point is a marketer and distributor of branded consumer products in the active ingredient space. You know, it's led by our core brands such as Zigzag, which, as you know, is a a leading and iconic 150 year old brand in the rolling paper category. As you know, uh, everywhere I see a uh, a Zigzag uh, rolling paper thing, I send you a picture. So yes, it's exactly. everywhere. Exactly. We generate roughly half a billion revenue. We're sold across, you know, B2B and B2C channels. We're in over 200,000 C stores, head shops, dispensaries, and we also sell directly to, to operators. As, I, as you know, I head up their corp dev efforts where I lead M&A and large commercial partnerships focused in the cannabinoid space. And to your question directly, you know, my role is really the result of, uh, you know, my personal and professional lives uh, colliding, so to speak. Uh, you know, on the personal front, like many in the industry, like you, you know, my relationship started pretty early, about 25 years ago. I think I'm, I'm aging myself a little bit, <laughs> but, uh, you know, my curiosity. Or you were, or you were starting at a very young age. Right? Exactly. <laughs> I was 18. <laughs> my curiosity led me to a normal meeting, National Organization Reform Marijuana Laws, as a freshman in college, which had an enormous impact on me. You know, it was 1996, right before Prop 215 was was finally approved. And you know, not only did I learn about the benefits of the plant and the grassroots efforts to legalize it, it set me down the path as an econ major, uh, to really deeply analyze the horrific social and economic, you know, impacts of prohibition. And I became a champion of legalization, you know, really behind the scenes, you know, on the professional side, as you mentioned, you know, I spent over 20 years as an active investor focused on both public and private companies undergoing what I call transformative change from startups to legacy turnarounds that, are really at the intersection of both internal change influenced by rapid secular change. And, you know, while my roles have luckily changed over the years, consistent thread is that I've been focused on partnering with management teams, mostly in the consumer industry to help catalyze this change. And specific to cannabinoids, you know, my world's really collided about eight years ago when many of the companies that I was actively invested with we're starting to get smarter on cannabinoids. And I took this as a major sign that this was really a generational opportunity to not only help create businesses, but for me personally, 
and what drives me is really to move the, the needle of culture and decided to leverage that background and, and enter the space. That's amazing. And I always love them. There's always like that, you know, people start out early, they don't realize, you know, people don't realize some people have been at this, you know, since like some of the legalization efforts, not just even as a business opportunity. So I, I love that, you know, you started, you started going to those normal meetings and just have that, you know, understanding of like where we're coming from. But since you joined Turning Point in 21, I would love to understand a little bit, you know, you did have this mainstream background. So what have you been able to leverage from your CPG investment background, like to Turning Point? And what do you think the biggest learning curve is? Because it's not apples to apples. For sure. It's a great question. You know, I think the biggest learning curve is that while I was invested in the sector personally for many years prior to joining Turning Point, it was really just taking the necessary time to deeply understand the value chain from seed to sale, paper to device, flower to manufacture goods, and, and which companies and teams were, were best positioned. And I think this is particularly challenging for, for two key reasons. One, as you know, every state is truly a standalone market at this point. And two, while it doesn't feel this way all the time, particularly on the regulatory side, the market is simply moving you know, at warp speed. So that you know, this simply takes a lot of reps, a lot of networking to get to know the various players and build valuable relationships, you know, where I hopefully can bring value to the equation. You know, from an investment standpoint, you know, I'd say for the first six months, it was really sifting through the pipeline and the portfolio that I inherited and, and taking really a giant step back to get the team and the board smarter on cannabinoids and, and really formulate a thesis for what the end state might look like, how we can play in it, and really develop a rigorous process to, again, deeply understand the companies and teams that we were willing to partner with. You know, what was very different, and hopefully this is, this is obvious, but, you know, our corp dev efforts have to be highly integrated with our overall strategy. And so in a lot of ways, you know, my efforts on this space is both offense and defense. It's not so much about, you know, what return we're looking to generate on a particular investment or partnership, but also what are the strategic and intangible benefits to zigzag and other brands in our portfolio by partnering and penetrating new markets. You know, the last thing I'd say is, you know, not every idea and opportunity that comes our way is actionable. And what they do do is they, they develop over time into very interesting commercial partnerships. And some examples, you know, are partnerships with Clipper Lighters. We have a partnership with Shows Fusion Carta, which is in the DAB space, Pedalfast, which I'm sure we'll get to, Amiri. You know, these are all examples that were born potentially on the MA side that developed into a, a much fruit, more fruitful partnership. Yeah, and I would love if you can dig a little bit more on that. Like, how do you and your team evaluate like what's an attractive partnership or like an M and A target? Um, like, and, and like, what are you specifically looking at? Like, are there new markets or new form factors? Like, like what is like that? Those are yeah. what I look for. It's a very good question. I mean, think going back what I just said about a you know very company specific thesis. I think we just had to take a very hard look in the mirror to not only figure out what our core competencies are, but also make bets that reflect our best estimate of what the end state is. And the reason for that is we're, we're not financial investors like many in the space. So Turning Point in a lot of ways is the quote final exit. 
you know, our core competency is, is really being a great steward of iconic brands and seamlessly distributing these products in North America. And that realization, you know, has guided what I do, which is basically trying to find opportunities between, you know, seed to sale. So we don't spend a lot of time on cultivation, nor do we spend a lot of time on retail, you know, the actual operations of retail, regardless of legalization, by the way. And so where I spend most of my time is on distribution, cannabis accessories, brands, integrated solutions that are sold uh, to operators. You know, historically, we've invested predominantly on the brand side. You know, companies like Opal, Dosis comes to mind. And, you know, of course, these investments and brands need to stand on their own. But like I mentioned, you know, our M&A strategy, you know, must have clear benefits to the overall core business. You know, just to use Opal as an example, you know, it's an asset-like, non-plant touching model that allows for easier state expansion, which, you know, in, 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 you know, indirectly allows ZigZag to kind of draft on that momentum to further penetrate dispensaries and grows alike. Yeah. And, and Opal was like such an interesting um, company. Like they were really like innovative. They're the first people to really like create this almost like platform. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and I think it's part of it, we've seen this like shifting consumer assumption habits, right? Which I know you guys are looking at. And the different consumption methods are more widely accepted. So when you're looking at these, you know, deals like an old pal or, you know, or um, a dosis, like what does innovation look like in the space? And like, what trends are you following? Because you guys have been ahead of it. You made that old pal investment or partnership, you know, pretty early on. Yeah, this is a fantastic question. You know, what I would say is, you know, because the market's moving so quickly, it's, you know, innovation's happening all around us, whether we notice it or not. You know, the most interesting aspect to me personally, it's what's happening or likely to happen inside the dispensary, which I'll focus on in a moment. But really, innovation's going on throughout the entire value chain from genetics to how the plant is grown how it's processed into various form factors and ultimately how it's sold to the end consumer. You know, what I would say is, you know, a lot of ways the large MSO vertical model is like a Swiss army knife and, and certainly not taking anything away from the companies we all know and love, but starting an MSO in, you know, 2015, 2014, you had to be good in so many different facets from regulatory to legal construction, real estate, manufacturing, all the above and do it at light speed, by the way. And so I think innovation as the industry matures, a key theme that we're watching very closely is this notion of, you know, what I would call specialization, where operators throughout the chain really figure out what they're great at and do more of that. You know, if I go back to the the dispensary, this is somewhat, you know, what I would say a conundrum. You know, on one hand, flour still commands, you know, call it 40% of the market but it's most exposed to commoditization like any agricultural product. And so it's susceptible to supply demand imbalances, which as you know, is very complicated. Now, on the other hand, you know, while I, I definitely believe premium genetics and grows will, will still continue to generate a large share of wallet, we've just seen, as you know, an explosion, not only in the types of way to consume cannabis from concentrates, and vapes, beverage, et cetera, but of course brands. Which, you know, at the end of the day, I think the big theme is that because cannabis is degrading every day in a jar, what we're seeing is, is a move more to a ma- more manufactured CPG product, product 
that treats the plant as an ingredient. And I think that does a, a number of really important things. One, it preserves it, like I mentioned. Two, it protects margin, just to give an example. A one gram pre-roll sells at a 20 to 30% premium to a gram of flour, right? Third, allows for consistency, which is critical, as you know, for brand loyalty and affinity. And lastly, efficacy, which I'm personally, as a consumer, very excited about. You know, if I'm looking for a solution to help me sleep or reduce anxiety, whatever it is, we can now dial in the product to address these use cases. And all of this is falls into what we call in a core thesis of ours, which is what we call dispensary 2.0. And if you follow me on social, I talk a lot about it. Like I mentioned, there's, there's a lot of benefits to being vertical, but one potential downside that's playing out, and who knows if it's temporary, is what it, it creates somewhat of a, a homogenous experience in the store. And why? You know, if you think about it, when you know 60 to 70% of the products on the shelves are your own, right? And the rest are, you know, your competitors sold next town over, it, it could lead to you know stagnation. And more importantly, the inability to really bifurcate the shelf to tailor the products to demographics and use occasions is, is, is lacking. So, you know, I say this all the time, you know, when I, when I go out, you know, I take my wife out on a date, you know, the bottle of wine that I buy for dinner is not necessarily the bottle of wine that I would buy for, you know, a barbecue for, for 20 friends. And you know, I think you can accomplish this by packaging, you know, buying an eighth, you know, versus an ounce. But I think the real solution, which is exciting to see, is, is going to be through brands. And this is exactly what happened in CPG, alcohol, tobacco, et cetera. And, and we're starting to see it. You know, some of your, your, your clients, you know, cookies, working with Terrasan, forming stores within a store, or asset-like companies like we mentioned on Old Pal or Miss Grass and Ascend or Wiz Khalifa and True Leaf. And we're seeing a lot of brands from California come east, whether it's, you know, 710 joining Flowery in Florida or Jungle Boys. I, I think I think we're, we're just at the precipitous of, uh, of what's to come. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you know, as East Coast, out of these kind of people, I'm loving seeing the proliferation of these brands coming East and seeing them, you know, things that we've been following in these other states really starting to pop up here and create like brand affinity. But something you touched on, which I think is interesting, is that like the ultra premium. Um, there's been a lot of conversation about that just in terms of what's happening, you know, in the overall market and the U.S. cannabis market, because we've all been touched by inflation, you know, and this use of disposable income. So we're hearing a lot of the MSOs, a lot of the operators talking about creating these value brands, like as one of the solutions, right? Because pennies are, are, are being pinched. So while sales are varying state to state, what do you think the most important factors are to keep in mind when trying to scale and miss, miss this market volatility? We're talking about these brands popping up, but yeah, also yeah. like it's a very strange time in the U.S. economy. I mean, we're not going to be paying for the ultra premium brands or these celebrity brands, which do command a, you know, a higher price point. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think we're living through a very challenging time for our industry. And I firmly believe that those that get through will be much better positioned. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we're in an industry where the core product is flashing, is, is facing deflation, which, you know, combating with, you know, very big pressures on consumers' wallets. So, you know, I think it's a moment in time. I think we will get through it, you know, in order to, to address your, your key question. And first, I think it comes down to the team and their ability to execute a business plan that works 
you know, regardless of the regulations. Easier said than done. I, I certainly appreciate, you know, again, maybe it's a moment in time, but I think right now it's really balance sheet over income statement. You know, growth at all costs isn't working. And yep. those that are going to survive and ultimately win are going to be the ones who can self-finance their own destiny. And of course, safe banking and uplisting, et cetera, are must-haves. But for the time being, it's really about preservation of capital versus you know, what I would call return on capital. And the last point I would make is just flexibility and the ability to move fast. When you're running that fast, of course, shit's going to break. <laughs> but you know, I think it takes a real growth mindset to understand, you know, that failure is part of the job, and 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 you have to learn from it and and really pick yourself off the mat. Absolutely, and I want to dig um a little bit more in and on, on some of the brands and building brand loyalty. Right, you guys have an impressive portfolio of products. We talked about some of them: Zigzag, Stokers, Newex, Solus. So what's like next for Turning Point Brands? Like how do you build this brand loyalty? I, part of it could be through, you know, distribution. I know if you could talk a little bit through, you know, your partnership with Pedalfast, let us understand how you guys think about creating brand loyalty in this interesting, you know, bifurcated market. Yeah. So I, I think if I take ZigZag for a moment, because that's really squarely focused on cannabinoids, I think, you know, we, like I mentioned, we're a 150-year-old brand. We were born effectively in the legacy market. It's 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 truly one of the the more valuable cannabis brands in the world, and and what we're trying to do is, you know, not only penetrate new channels. To give you an example, like, you know, there are ten thousand dispensaries in the United States today that really didn't exist five years ago. So there's a lot of runway for us to penetrate new verticals, new distribution channels, and 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 all of what I just mentioned on M and A and partnerships. Is highly related to how we to we do how we get that how we get that done. Just to point out what we're trying to do on Zigzag, you know, you saw some efforts with Zigzag Studio and our partnerships with Amiri. I think at the end, let me talk a little bit about that though. A little bit about about um, Zigzag Studio. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is again capitalize on this iconic heritage and and really personify the brand and feature talented creatives from numerous industries through branded videos and content, which for us, you know, it's a launch pad for consumer engagement and it allows us to offer exclusive limited edition merchandise like I talked about Amiri and collaborations that, you know, effectively, hopefully strengthens our brand for, for long-term success. You know, the response has been overwhelmingly positive, particularly on ZigZag Studio. You know, we've generated over, you know, 100 million organic impressions, you know, fueled by very powerful and, and, and very fortunate for us with celebrities like Mick Jagger and French Montana and Billy Strings, to name a few, that, that clearly sit outside, you know, cannabis, but allows ZigZag to really command space uh, in pop culture. I love it. And, um, you know, we, we love the creator economy, right? We're seeing, you know, what influencers and celebrities can do. And especially when it's like trusted longtime brand like ZigZag, I feel like it's an easier ask to get like a, you know, mainstream like celebrity behind because it does have this long, rich history, which is like really a value to you guys, I would imagine. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I'd love to talk a little bit. I, I mentioned it briefly, like talk to me about the, your Pedal Fast uh, partnership. You know, we love the Pedal Fast team. They're doing some, you know, incredible stuff in terms of distribution and marketing. You know, you guys have obviously a long time, you know, sales team. What made you decide to, you know, maybe level up or just, you know, 
get onto the PedalFab platform? Yeah, sure. So PedalFast is is really a fascinating partnership. You know, it's an example, I think, what I spoke about above, you know, PedalFast, which, as you know, is led by, by Jason or Arun. They were introduced to me very early on as we were getting smarter on sales and distribution strategies in California, given some of our investments. You know, Jason and their team will do a much better job selling their story. But I think what they did was they took a, a page from the alcohol business and provided subscale brands the ability to have presence in front of dispensary buyers as well as end consumers through on-site activations via sales agency model. You know, at the same time, as I mentioned, you know, we are actively looking for creative ways to penetrate this nascent dispensary market and expand distribution into the head shop and smoke shop markets. And so, you know, what's critical about these channels is it's very much a captive market. So to give an example, when you go to a dispensary, you're going to buy weed. And the velocities for our product are, are a lot higher. You know, ZigZag was the or is the first non-plant touching product in PedalFast portfolio. And we're really excited about, you know, following PedalFast as they continue to penetrate uh, new states. Yeah, they're on a, a growth tear and it's really exciting to see the markets that they're infiltrating and just the work that they're doing. I think they're a super smart team and got a great model. I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, Trending Point Brands, you guys are actively engaged in the regulatory and legislative process for cannabis. And you guys even have an office in D.C., I believe. And you guys are dedicated to working stakeholders, you know, at all levels of government. So. <laughs> 39 states account to give legalized cannabis for medical use. And while federal legalization is on the rise and movement is slow. So what, you know, you guys have your ear to the ground. What policies and regulations you see in Act FDA, CBP, and TTB to promote growth innovation industry? And what steps do you guys think need to happen to continue propelling this legalization effort forward, you know, with what you guys are hearing? Yeah, that's a great and complicated question. You know, our experience in the regulated tobacco and, and vape space, you know, gives us a unique perspective into some of the benefits and costs of, you know, simply handing power over to agencies like the FDA and hopeful, hoping they'll, they'll foster a marketplace that benefits. Very scary, by the way, like they should <laughs> exactly. not be in charge of a marketplace. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, and hoping they'll foster a marketplace that, you know, benefits a diverse marketplace as opposed to call it you know, a handful of big players, which is exactly what's happened in tobacco, perhaps by design, by the way. And so, you know, our main objective in, in cannabinoids is, is really turning on a fair and equitable regulated market at the expense of a persistent, you know, illicit market, which in today's environment, you know, in my opinion, has very little benefit to both the end consumer and operators alike. You know, comprehensive you know, regulatory frameworks are are burdensome. And so to the extent that the FDA or some other government agency is in charge, you know, we'd like them to really focus on, you know, product standards, testing, pathways for innovation and new products, marketing practices, obviously safe banking, but also enforcement. And so, you know, those are the things that we, we champion uh, on the Hill. You know, I think New York is is really a great example of what concerns us, frankly. You know, everyone in the industry undeniably champions for, you know, social equity and ensuring those who have been most harmed by prohibition have the chance to take their earned right uh, on the stage. But, you know, New York's blind eye to enforcement 
you know, at the expense of decriminalization, in my opinion, sets everyone back. You know, it puts the end consumer at, at, at risk. It slows down institutional capital and really leaves a, a significant amount of tax dollars on the table for the state. And, and, and you know, like I mentioned, I, I just don't think that can be the answer. Your question on, you know, what needs to happen, you know, I firmly believe this is going to continue to be a state-led issue. And I also believe that we're close to a tipping point. States are simply forcing the government's hand or the federal government's hand, regardless of what aisle you sit in, because the states take matter into their own hands, it, it really it forces the federal representatives to take a position where those yeah. markets exist. And so, like you mentioned, we're at 39 states, nine, uh, medical states, 19 rec. And with New Jersey turning on and the other four states pending, I guess it's New, uh, New York, Connecticut, Island. Virginia, Vermont, and, and I guess D.C. you can throw in there. Yeah. That's a 30% lift to the TAM. And just about 50% of the U.S. population will now live in a, a legal rec market. So I think it's a matter of if, not when, but it's anyone's bet on when that actually comes to fruition. Yeah. And, you know, and just as a, and listen, you know, I think we're all sort of feeling it and hopeful, right? We've seen a lot of false starts, but um, like you said, like with so many states coming online, like the pressure is going to build, like you just can't pretend it's not happening on a state-by-state basis and miss out on those tax dollars. But what's actually like most exciting you right now about U.S. cannabis, right? Like you sit from very disadvantage point, you see what the big operators are doing. You have your, you know, ears to the ground in Washington and you touch most of the industry. So what's exciting you right now? Yeah, I mean, I think we're still in the very early innings. <laughs> we often lose stock, you know, how far we've come in a relatively short period of time. You know, while it's been 25 years since Prop 215, the real progress, the juice has been in the last, you know, call it seven years with now, you know, like 50% living in a wrecked market, 90% of Americans want it legalized in some form, whether medical or wreck. And like I mentioned before, it's, it's really uh, an issue that's crossing party lines. I think the industry today is is what I would call a toddler. You know, it's it's beautiful, it's exciting, it's growing fast, but let's be honest, toddlers can be fucking annoying at times. <laughs> I've so, like never heard a better analogy right now. Like I'm feeling this in my soul. <laughs> so as I think as we figure out the rules of the road, I think it'll be a, a become a, a bit clearer how the industry evolves and, and, and where to make bigger bets. You know, what excites me personally is that the product is simply getting better, you know, better okay. product, better flower, better products, better customer experiences. So it's going to be a fun time to be a consumer, especially as the social stigma continues to decline. You know, regarding the industry, I don't know, I don't think it'll be fully realized, you know, certainly in the next year, but, you know, I think three themes that we have an eye on that, that are exciting are, you know, what I would call, you know, segmentation, two, specialization, and three, industrialization. And if I could just kind of tease those out so with the segmentation, you know, I mentioned this above, but, you know, we're, we're really going to see increased efforts by brands and MSOs to target specific customer demographics versus blanketing the entire market. And that's going to be exciting to watch. On the specialization, I mentioned it also is, you know, I think we're going to realize that we all can't be world class at everything, especially throughout the value chain. And I think over time, we're going to going to see 
real operators stand out and you know what they're really good at and, and leave the rest. Focus to. drives excellence, right? Like I say it all the time. Yeah. Uh, a few smart people have uh, taught me that along the way, and I believe it. Exactly. And, and then lastly, on, on industrialization, I think you know very simply the old way of, of doing business is, is just changing from manufacturing all the way to how it's being sold. I, I think you're going to see tremendous technological advances to, to drive efficiencies. And so that's also very exciting to watch. Yeah, I also say from RC, you know, um, we represent this is a shameless plug for one of our clients, but I actually believe it, like LeafLink, like this B2B e-commerce just like did not exist in any other industry. And like, it's a thriving business in, in cannabis. And like, I think other people take models from it, right? Like that's the beautiful thing about cannabis is being born in this era where there's so many, you know, tech, technological, you know, things at our disposal. So it's just so cool to watch. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah, Scott. So thanks so much for joining us today. This was so interesting to hear your perspective on things. It, I will continue to send you photos of my zigzags every time I see them or my, uh, with Afro Man. It's Afro Man who sings Cold 45, right? Zigzag, right? That one? Yeah, that's called. I forgot the name of it, but it is one of my favorite songs. Thanks so much for joining us today and looking forward. I hope you'll come back again one day. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Always. Oh,